Imagine you're a Martian. Your job is to understand that spinning blue planet called Earth. You take a slice, and the very first thing you would notice of the only life-sustaining planet we know is that most of the planet is dead, comprised of molten lava and old rock, completely inhospitable to life. But it's that thin, thin layer of life that pulls you in, covered in lush rainforests, endless oceans, vast deserts. And you ask yourself, how does that thin film work? Today, we're going to answer that question, or at least hone in on a very specific, incredibly crucial piece of the puzzle. This is the piece that keeps the rest of that film layer a lush and livable place to be. Without this process and the group of species that conduct it, we'd be living in disgust and our circle of life would collapse. But zoom in on the process that keeps the harmony and it's anything but peaceful. This group of species, sometimes cloaked in vibrant greens and blues, sometimes a jarring jet black, are violent. Both males and females alike grow massive horns almost the length of their bodies. They flock to their treasure within minutes and demolish it, tearing it apart and hiding it away or burying it below the surface. They're vicious and will even fight to the death when it comes down to it. And you and me, we depend on this process. Today, we're heading into the field to zoom in on the group of species that the circle of life is built upon. Today, we're talking all about dung beetles. My name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, a podcast series by Osa Conservation dedicated to, inspired by, and created in the last wild places on Earth. These stories help us understand the dilemma between humanity and the planet humanity depends on. We'll tap into the knowledge of experts around the world and take you to some of the most pristine and vulnerable wildernesses on Earth. I'm reporting from the Osa Conservation Biological Station, surrounded by Costa Rica's ancient rainforests. Join me as I look for answers from the top conservationists, scientists, and nature nerds around the world. This episode is dedicated to the little creatures in charge of cleaning up our planet and keeping it hospitable. To start off, we're chatting with Dr. Adrian Forsyth, an ecologist, conservationist, and lead dung beetle researcher. Just this year, Dr. Forsyth co-published a paper highlighting what dung beetles tell us about the habitats around us, from cattle pastures to primary rainforest. After we hear from him, we'll head into the field with one of the other co-authors of the paper to get up close and personal with the creatures these people have dedicated their lives to. But first, here is Dr. Adrian Forsyth to introduce us to the world of dung. Yeah, so I'm a tropical ecologist, and if you work in tropical forests uh, and just pay attention to what's going on, uh, you quickly realize that uh, dung beetles are really running a key part of uh, the ecosystem, and the living depend on the dead. And so if you're concerned about the living, you have to be concerned about how did the dead become living? And dung beetles are a key part of that. When something dies, something, whether it's a fungus or a dung beetle or a millipede, uh, has to convert that into things that plants can use. And so ultimately, 
Dung beetles are important because they're one of the busiest, most dramatically active part of a tropical ecosystem, which is where most of that diversity that the Martians are seeing is found. So dung beetles are the key to recycling uh, material into the living ecosystem. Uh, and when you don't have them, you know, things don't go so well. Okay, so I've spent my whole life hearing about the circle of life, right? That's something that's very familiar. In general, I learned about it from Disney Channel when I was like three. <laughs> but I've never really thought about what you just said about how we actually recycle that dead into living. Can you just break down in very basic terms for me what dung beetles do? Again, I'm going to talk about a tropical rainforest because that's what the Martians are going to think is the coolest thing about the planet in terms of how many life forms it contains. And they would be seeing that it's a lot of big trees and they would understand that those trees have to move themselves uh, in the form of fruits with seeds to new places to reestablish themselves. And they would see that trees have evolved alliances uh, with things like monkeys, where the monkeys get something sweet and juicy to eat and the tree gets its seeds moved to a new spot away from disease away from competitors etc so the trees and the monkeys go together so what happens after the uh, monkey eats the fruit well you know it may take a siesta it may go to sleep for the night and in the morning when monkeys wake up they take a crap they're sleeping up in a tree and they all take a crap. Um, and so below any monkey roost, you'll find like an accumulation of monkey dung, but not for long. You know, normally what would happen is the dung beetles will come and scrape that up, roll it away or bury it directly. And the seeds that are in that uh, buried dung have a good chance of germinating and becoming new trees. But if they're not, if they're left exposed on the soil surface, they get destroyed by things that like to eat seeds. That could be rodents, it could be uh, ants, it could be fungi. There are many things that want to eat those seeds and not uh, spread them around. So the dung beetles are the key part of what we call secondary dispersal of the seeds. And in the same process, they're also pulling nutrients down into the soil. So putting that right into the root zone for plants. And you'll see that if you could put a tracer in it, you'd see with hours. And the fungi are, have sponged up all these nutrients like nitrogen, and they're trading them to the tree in exchange for sugar. But they get them uh, via the dung beetles. So these things all work together. So tell me about how you went from being hardwired to be a bit disgusted and disturbed by dung to dedicating so much of your life to these animals what was kind of your journey through getting past the the nasty and getting into the making this part of your career and your profession yeah i was um i was in western ecuador in the uh, 70s in what is now a tiny little forest fragment then it was connected to a big sea of forest that unfortunately got replaced by oil, oil palm. And I was by myself, you know, I was putting out samples for dung beetles just to watch what they were doing. And I can remember seeing this great big emerald green uh, beetle with a great big horn coming to the dung. First, it, you know, I thought it was a hummingbird buzzing around me. It was like making this loud whirring 
noise and it circled around and around and finally it landed and another one came and landed and they began to just beat the crap haha out of each other <laughs> uh and uh and fight for this stuff so it wasn't that they were just coming in and burying this stuff it was the uh reason for them to have a brutal uh battle over this stuff and that just reconfirmed a, these things show up within minutes of them detecting this resource. And it is so valuable to them that they've evolved weapons and they use them in vigorous combat to control this resource. And that just spoke to me about how fertility and the, the competition for fertility and the thirst to recycle those nutrients is so intense that these things have evolved to be weaponized and aggressive. If they were the size of elephants, you wouldn't think so much about elephants. <laughs> they are they are dramatic. They're small, but they are dramatic creatures. I've actually seen them fight so hard that they tear legs off each other. And I'm sure in some cases, females kill other females. Going to say the thought of a horned green beetle fighting over dung seems like something I would have like dreamt up in a nightmare, but you're talking about this with a huge smile on your face. Um, a paper was recently published, I know you were one of the co-authors on it, that talked all about dung beetles as indicator taxon, which we can use to assess tropical biodiversity. Can you talk about like looking forward, what's left to learn about dung beetles? What other questions do you have? Well, you know, I think um, climate change is on everyone's mind uh, these days. And so we're all trying to imagine how the flora and fauna, including dung beetles, will adapt to climate change. Uh, and so I've been working with an ecologist called Tron Larson, who's at Conservation International. And uh, we've been sampling uh, beetles along the eastern Andes uh, and looking every 10 years at which ones are able to and who has to climb the mountain in response to climate change. And so we're finding they have to go up about 40 meters every year in terms of their overall distribution just to keep up with climate change. And that's because they're adapted, like most things that live in tropical forests, are adapted to a really narrow temperature range. And if you change the temperature, they have to move and refine their climate or die. So these things are having to climb the mountain just like trees are having to go up 10 feet a year, two and a half meters a year to keep up with climate. So, you know, I think studying, you know, these systems that tell you about how climate change will redistribute species, which ones will be winners, losers, uh, which ones will go extinct. The ones that are close to the top of tropical mountains, they're going to extinct. They have nowhere to go, right? Uh, they climb to the top of the mountain and they're over. And we're seeing that with toads and birds and all kinds of things. So uh, dung beetles are just part of that story. So I think that's one thing to be where there's a lot of learning to be done. And, you know, just there's a whole new lens into the world uh, in the form of uh, genomics and metagenomics. In the past, we could never know what a dung beetle ate when it ca came to a trap. It was just a black box in terms of who were you before I caught you? Uh, 
Uh, but with metagenomics, you can now see, did you hatch from a howler monkey? Did you feed on the scat of a jaguar? With genomics, now it's like the invention of the microscope in the 17th century. We can see things that uh, 20 years ago it would have been science fiction. And so the power of genomics to explain the world is something that you know can be applied to dung beetles. Like Adrian said, there is still so much to learn about and from this group of species. It's one thing to read a paper and get on the phone with an expert, but it's a completely different experience to get in and amongst the beetles themselves. So now we are heading into the rainforests of Costa Rica's Osa Peninsula, where researchers are on the ground trying to learn as much as they can from these mini beasts. One of those researchers is Eleanor Flatt, and she is going to give us the up-close and personal look at dung beetles. Here's Eleanor. I am the Wildlife Program Manager at Osa Conservation, and I've been living and working here in the tropical rainforest of the Osa Peninsula now for six years. The first year I lived in a hammock. <laughs> and my job consists of studying the wildlife that we have here so we can get information that's going to help us guide conservation and restoration efforts. We study species like the apex predator, the jaguar, their main prey source, the white-lipped peccary, which is this jungle pig, um, which smells quite bad. Um, and then also species up in the canopy, like the Central American spider monkey. But one of my favorite taxa groups to study are the dung beetles. You just listed off jaguars and endangered spider monkeys, and then you told me your favorite thing to study is actually dung beetles. Are you lying? Are you just doing that because you know I'm here to ask you about them? <laughs> no, I am I'm not lying. It's, it's 100% the truth. What I love about dung beetles is they're small, but they're mighty, um, and they can tell us a lot about a habitat, a, a system, and the health of that system. So each dung beetle... Um, dependent on their size or how they move dung around, they'll be responsible for a different function um, in the rainforest. Um, and it's not like, so if we want to study jaguars, you have to put a camera trap out. Um, they cost a lot more money and it takes a long time to kind of detect a jaguar. Where with dung beetles, you can answer questions quickly, um, which is why I like them. What can dung beetles tell you about the world around you? Yeah, so obviously dung beetles need dung to feed on. So they're directly linked to mammals. So we're actually studying jaguars, spider monkeys, tapirs and white-lipped peccaries without actually studying them. So as well as telling us about the mammals that are present um, in a rainforest, they also just tell us generally about rainforest health. Um, and some of the work that we're continuing to do here at Osa Conservation is sample dung beetles um, as part of our restoration experiment. So we have a restoration experiment where we're trialing different planting styles to see what is the best and quickest way to regrow a, a rainforest. And we're using dung beetles to, to measure that. Um, to measure that success. It's really accessible research. So you can literally go out in a forest with really simple things that you will find out in your house, build a trap and see them within like minutes if you have the perfect bait. 
so it sounds like kind of the value of dung beetles is they tell you a lot and you can research them easily. So how, how what does that look like? How do you research a dung beetle? <laughs> yeah, so we build pitfall traps. Um, so literally to build a dung beetle pitfall trap, you need a cup or a plastic water bottle, a plate for a roof and kebab skewers for the legs for the roof and to hold the bait in place. So we use um, homemade bait. Everyone has access to it. We use human dung um, and we put it in empty tea bags. Um, And obviously being British, any excuse to use anything related to tea is just really exciting. Um, So then we hover this tea bag um, over the inverted water bottle or plastic cup and they'll come and feed on the dung and drop in there um, and won't be able to fly out. And then we have the roof to protect the trap from any rain. Because we are in the rainforest. Of course. There's a lot of rain and apparently a lot of dung. Very important things. <laughs> Equally important, the rain and the dung. I love that. I'm a little embarrassed. I've been living at this biological station with you for over a year and I've never seen a dung beetle. I, I actually can't believe it. So hopefully we can change that today. Yeah, we will. I have a good feeling. Eleanor and I took a few moments to get geared up for the field, which means snake-proof rubber boots and mosquito-proof long sleeves. Then we took off through the rainforest. <laughs> okay, where are we going right now? So we're going to hike up into the primary forest um, where we've got some really big ancient mega trees and we're gonna set a dung beetle pitfall trap so what can different species tell you are there like different kinds of dung beetles or are they like all a dung beetle is a dung beetle <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> she looks so stern when she says that like how could you even think that <laughs> teach me, teach me. so we have three main groups of dung beetles um so we have rollers which they'll arrive at the dung and they'll form like little balls. These are probably the most famous dung beetles and I think how people imagine all dung beetles in their head. But they'll arrive to the the treasure, the dung, um, and they'll form these little balls and then kind of roll them away with their bums in the air using their back legs to guide the ball. And then they'll use that ball either to feed on or lay their eggs. Um, and then the It's like s- a cartoon. They like come and they like, <laughs> yeah. like a snowball. Pretty much. Um, And then the second group we have is tunnelers. Um, So they'll arrive at the dung and they'll tunnel chambers, secret chambers. And then they'll bring little brood balls of like little dung sausages um, into those tunnels underneath. And again, they'll feed and lay their eggs in them. And then the third group of dung beetles we have is the dwellers. So they literally arrive and just live in the dung. (laughs) I don't think I'd want to be a dweller. I think I'd be a roller. <laughs> I think you'd be a roller yeah, too. <laughs> I think I'd be good at it. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So why why the difference? Do you know? Like why would some of these species roll it away and some of it literally tunnel into it right then and there? Yeah, so this is kind of good for secondary seed dispersal. So you've got some species rolling it away and those little balls of dung will probably only have small seeds in, um, but they'll be rolling away so those seeds will be further away. And then you've got some where they're digging these seeds into the ground. So almost like planting the seeds. Um, so there's kind of that level of interaction, which is which is super nice. Kind of fascinating that they're literally 
they're designed to plant the seeds that are actually growing back these forests. Mm-hmm. Okay, where are we right now? What are okay. we about to do? So now we're in the primary forest. We're going to set up a dung beetle pitfall trap. So the first thing um, that we do is we kind of, as you can see, we've got this dense um, leaf litter um, on the forest floor. So we're going to kind of wipe it away. Um, and then we're going to dig a hole with this little hand shovel. Um, for our cut up plastic bottle. Um, so I'm gonna start digging here. Okay, so now we have um, a hole big enough. We're gonna put the trap in the ground and it needs to kind of be flush with the ground. So right now, Eleanor just dug with her hands and this little hand shovel, like a hole, what is that, like four or five inches deep? Yeah. Maybe six? And she's shoving this like plastic, is that a Coke bottle? Yeah, Diet Coke. (laughs) Diet Coke. (laughs) Is that for dung beetles or is that just your drink of choice? That's for the dung beetle researcher. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. That's what I thought. Okay, so now we've got it nice and flush in the ground and you can see how I've cut the top off and it's um, inverted. So you've kind of got this funnel. So when the dung beetles fall in, they won't be able to, to fly back out. Um, And now, Lucy, is the fun part. And every time, whenever you set up your first dung beetle trap, um, you have to do this. Oh, so you're gonna make me do it? Yeah, orientation. Oh no! Um, So this is the homemade organic bait um, that I was telling you about. It's a big bag of poop. (laughs) Um, Literally, everyone has access um, to this bait. Um, We can all make it which makes studying dung beetles really easy because you don't have to order it or go to the supermarket. (laughs) Um, So we're going to put this dung into an empty tea bag. Um, So I'm just putting some gloves on. If you want to put some gloves on as well, Lucy. Can I have three or four pairs? (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready to go. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to open this Ziploc bag. And this is the treasure. Smell that delicious bait. We're gonna get some really good dung beetles with this, I reckon. So you kind of take a small handful um, and then we're gonna shove it in the tea bag like that. Okay. Um, And now, does that look good? Perfect. And now you can tie the string of that tea bag to this kebab skewer. That's it. Okay. Um, and then we've got our poo stick, literally. Um, and you're going to shove that in the ground so it's hovering kind of over the center of the trap that we've just buried in the ground. So they'll come in and feed and drop off into the trap and not be able to get out until we come come and investigate them. And we're going to check, come back at like 5 o'clock tomorrow morning? Yeah, so we're going to give it almost 24 hours um, so we can... Um, trap the species that are only active during the day and species only active during the night. It's like a dung beetle palace in there. Oh yeah, we go fancy. (laughs) Um, And there we have our dung beetle pitfall trap. We can perhaps wait a little bit to see if any species arrive now. So we can just kind of sit a couple meters away and wait to see if anyone flies in to the dung beetle palace. Does it happen that quickly? It can happen in a few minutes. That's crazy.
Eleanor and I waited just a few minutes, and then... Wait, is that a dung beetle? We've got our first dung beetle. Ooh. How cool is that? What was that? Like three minutes? Not even. Is it what you imagined a dung beetle to look like? I mean, after <laughs> all of this like talk, I had them like built up at these like massive daunting beetles. That one's really tiny. It's so like this is yeah, this is one of the not our smallest species that we get, but not one of our biggest either, kind of kind of in the middle. Um they can get a lot bigger um than that here and then in in other areas um particularly in africa you can get some massive dung beetles i can't believe i've never like seen a dung beetle before and they came so quickly like in a matter of three minutes i guess i don't really hang around dung that much but still this is wild yeah i mean if you set up one of these traps back at your house in the u.s lucy you would find dung beetles you can get in and amongst them in and amongst them. Have you gotten in and amongst them places other than Costa Rica? Um, yeah, so, well, most of the research I've done with dung beetles has been here in the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica. Um, but I've also studied them in Peru. Um, and I'm actually part of an expedition team called Exploration Sierra. And we go to this kind of remote mountain range in Peru. And it's very much unexplored. So each time we run an expedition, we're looking to kind of monitor and assess the biodiversity that lives there. So the year I joined Exploration Sierra, um, I was awarded with the Scientific Exploration Society Elodie Sanford Explorer Award. So I joined the team and we went to do camera trapping, butterfly surveys, birds, and then for the first time in Cerros del Sierra, um, we set up dung beetle traps to see what species were there. So it was a really exciting experience. That's so fascinating. Like Look, you can see he's building a ball. See how he's doing it with his back legs? Yeah. And he's like, so he's like chewing it off and then pushing it together with his back legs. On our hike back to the station, Eleanor told me about when she first started studying dung beetles. So, I remember like, so when I first came here, I had no experience with like pitfall trapping or dung beetles. And I remember reading lots of papers on, on how to trap dung beetles, including the, the paper that Adrian Forsyth wrote on the perfect trapping design for dung beetles. So that became like my Bible. <laughs> Um, and Your I dung actually, beetle bible. Yeah, I took it out in the field with me and, and started pitfall trapping. Um, but I always remember the first time I I put a trap and I almost couldn't sleep because I was like, oh, I hope this trap works. Um, and then I went back and it had like 30 dung beetles in it and it was like the happiest day of my life. <laughs> we went back to the trap the next morning to see if my first ever pitfall trap could bring me that same kind of joy. Okay. Back to the trap 24 hours later, let's see how we did. So we're gonna pull the cup out the ground. Um, and we can, I mean, you can already hear them scurrying around. Um, so we're gonna pull the inverted lid off. Oh, it's so creepy And crawling. they're all of our dung beetles. So what we're gonna do now is take these back to the lab 
um, so we can identify them um, because we'll have to look at them nice and closely with, with hand microscopes so we can confirm some of the species. Um, and we get around 40 species here in the Ossa Peninsula. Eleanor followed up a few days later and confirmed we had trapped over 20 different dung beetle species. Not bad for my first ever pitfall trap. It's pretty wild to think that those tiny beetles scuttling around in the trap are responsible for keeping this thin film an inhabitable place for life on Earth. To learn more about the stars of today's episode, read the paper that inspired these questions, linked in our show notes. While you're there, please rate and review The Nature Dilemma. Your feedback means so much, and we want to hear from you. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Once again, my name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, brought to you by OSA Conservation.